today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We hope you're having a great summer, and we are enjoying ours, and we'll be looking forward to a busy fall with more Myeloma Crowd Roundtables. Now, you listen to this program because you want answers from myeloma experts, and the roundtables are live meetings where you can listen to live myeloma experts in person. Uh, The roundtables cover new treatment options and hot topics like immunotherapy, but also focus on relapsed and high-risk disease because these patients need help the very most. We will be announcing our next roundtable meetings shortly. Now, what we've heard from the major conferences covering myeloma is that even with all the new therapies, stem cell transplants are still key in myeloma treatments. Drugs or other treatments are now being added on the front and back end to make transplant even more effective. So joining us today is Dr. Philip McCarthy, who is a stem cell transplant expert, and he joins us to share his findings from recent research just completed at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute. Welcome, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you, Ms. Alstrom, and I apologize for being late. Oh, no, you're totally fine. Perfect timing. Um, Let me give an intro for you before we get started with our questions. Um, Dr. McCarthy is Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute. He's Associate Professor of Medicine, a member of the graduate faculty, and a professor of oncology and internal medicine. Dr. McCarthy is a committee member for local, regional, and national groups, including the core member and associate chair of the Multiple Myeloma Committee, core member of the Transplant Committee, Cancer and Leukemia Group B, which is called CALGB, now called the Action Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology, a FACT or FACT Clinical Standards Committee member on the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network for Myeloma, an ASH scholar in the clinical study section, member of the NCI Myeloma Steering Committee, and the Myeloma and Lymphoma CIBMTR Working Committees. So extremely uh, involved in kind of creating the direction for myeloma transplant. Dr. McCarthy has been a clinical investigator in oncology, particularly in bone marrow transplantation, for more than 20 years, and his research interests are devoted to helping new auto and allo treatments for hematological disorders or blood cancers, including myeloma, that will lead to improved patient outcomes and decreased toxicity. So, Dr. McCarthy, thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you for the kind invitation. It's always great to speak with patients about all the new ways we can treat this disease and hopefully someday cure it. Oh, I agree. So let's talk about transplant because um, as a little intro, I know um, in in the news recently was something we're going to be discussing, which is uh, one of the proposal, or one of the papers that you presented at, at the recent ASCO conference. But maybe you want to step back for a minute and give us an idea of the role of transplant in the aid of new therapies. I know patients all the time think, well, you know, if we have all these new drugs, will stem cell transplant eventually go away? And at ASH this last December, we heard about lots of new therapies, but we also heard a key message that transplant was still a core and valuable treatment. Yes, there were actually two recent studies. One was the French-American study. Uh, Michelle Attal uh, from the French group presented <clears throat> excuse me, data looking at uh, an upfront treatment of transplant versus transplant at, at uh, first progression after primary therapy. And all the patients in, in the French group and in the United States received 
similar upfront therapy, there's a difference in maintenance, which I can talk about in, the sec, in a sec. So he presented the French portion of the study, and they, they had about 900 patients who received either lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone. Everybody got that, but then followed by either transplant or collect stem cells and then transplant at progression. So it was three cycles of uh, so-called RVD, len, bortezomib, dex, uh, and then um, stem cell mobilization with cyclophosphamide, which we don't always do in the States nowadays, but it was done to make the study more homogeneous. And then again, if, for the patients who were assigned to high-dose therapy, they received malphalan, stem cell rescue, and then a uh, same RVD consolidation, uh, and then followed by LEN maintenance. Uh, for the other arm, it was eight cycles of RVD and then LEN maintenance. And in France, they did only a, a year's worth of LEN maintenance. There's a whole discussion about second cancers. We could talk about that in a sec. Um, but what they showed in this study was that the patients who received the upfront transplant had a superior progression-free survival. And I think that was one of the questions you had posed, what the difference is. What that means is that it took longer for the disease to come back if you received a uh, stem cell transplant, whereas if you got RVD or chemotherapy alone, um, the disease came back sooner. And there was a significant difference. However, when you looked at the overall survival, it was a, essentially the same. There was no difference between the two arms. So that meant that the patients who had progression of disease were still alive and were able likely to receive salvage therapy and then potentially go on to transplant. They didn't present that data, but they did show that the three-year survival was over 80% for both arms, which is really, uh, had been unheard of. Uh, this is really uh, an advance. Now you want the three-year survival to be 100%. We're not there yet. But this showed that transplant was still a valuable option in terms of preventing the disease from coming back sooner relative to, say, receiving uh, chemotherapy. And do you want me to talk about the ASCO trial? I mean, the ASCO presentation from the Europeans? Um, sure, sure. That's EMN02. Uh, that is a European uh, myeloma network trial. And they, what they did, that was presented by Michele Cavo uh, on behalf of the uh, European Myeloma Network. And they had a little different one. They, they started with um, a bortezomib cyclophosphamide DEX, or they call it VCD. In the States, it's sometimes called Cybor-D cyclophosphamide bortezomib DEX. And there's different flavors of how it's administered, the different dosing and things like that. But they had a fairly standard dosing schedule. And patients got three to four cycles of the VCD and then high-dose cyclophosphamide to mobilize stem cells. And then they were assigned or randomized to either... Um, Bortezma, melphalan, and prednisone for four cycles and low dose, or they got high dose melphalan for one or two transplants. If there wasn't a good enough response, they got two transplants. And then there was a further randomization to a consolidation with uh, bortezomib blendex, uh, VRD or RVD, as you want to say, and then uh, that's for two cycles uh, versus no consolidation. Then all patients got lenalidomide maintenance at a schedule of um, uh, until progression at a schedule of 21 days on, uh, seven days off, so 21 out of 28 days every four weeks. And that study showed that there was a significant benefit to the 
transplant arm in that patients who got a transplant had a superior progression-free survival again. Um, there was about a um, uh, about an eight-month difference at uh, three years in terms of progression-free survival. So that the transplant arm, it took longer for the cancer to come back. And again, there was no difference in overall survival. Uh, but again, it's in both this study and in the French-American study, um, they're they're early and in a just because the now that the we've gotten much better therapies, people are fortunately living longer, so it's going to take longer to see if there really will be an overall survival difference uh, between the two different treatment modalities. Plus, because people can get salvaged with newer drugs, because there are lots of new drugs, it's harder to see an overall survival difference because it's not like if you progress after uh, chemotherapy, there's nothing you can do. There's actually many things that can be done. And then one last thing, um, the French and American study, the Americans, are, led by Paul Richardson, are doing a little bit different uh, maintenance strategy in that patients, instead of getting maintenance only for a year, it's maintenance until progression. And so we think that is probably better, and that leads into the study that uh, I was involved with uh, that was presented at this year's ASCO. Um, and we also represented it a similar one at um, at uh, EHA, sorry, the European Hematology Association. That was right afterwards, a couple of weeks later. And what we were able mm -hmm. to show there is we took the three studies. We took the French study from that was published in 2012, uh, IFM 0502. Uh, the the New, New England Journal of Medicine study, uh, which is um, that was sorry, New England Journal of Medicine paper that we presented, the CLGB 100, 104. Sorry about that. And uh, the Jemima trial, which is the Italian study. The three um, studies all looked at lenalidomide maintenance um, for until progression, and versus either a placebo or no therapy. And each study showed a progression-free survival benefit. In other words, those patients who received lenalidomide, had, it took longer for the disease to come back. Um, the French study did not show a clear overall survival benefit, and the Italian study, same. They had a trend, whereas in the U.S. study, the 100-104 study, we did see a survival difference. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what this meta-analysis did was look at all three studies. So we pooled the data from um, all three, the French, American, and the Italian studies. So now we have 1,200, over 1,200 patients, 605 who received LEN maintenance, 604 who received, who were control patients, either placebo or no treatment. And what we were able to show, the bottom line was that the control arm, those who did not get maintenance, had a median overall survival of 86 months. So that meant that at 86 months, half of the patients had died of their myeloma, but the other half were still alive. And if we looked at those who got lenalidomide, um, the, the median over survival has not yet been reached. We could do an estimate that it's probably going to be close to 116 months. And, and, the, and the hazard ratio between them showed that it was 0.74. So what that means is there is a 26% reduction in the risk of death in those patients who got lenalidomide. And this translates a roughly to about a 2.5-year increase in median survival. So obviously we want to make it so that everybody has 
is alive for a prolonged period of time. But this, we think, is a big step forward. When we look at seven years after uh, from the start of the study, uh, the seven-year overall survival is 62% for the myeloma, uh, for the lenalidomide patients and 50% for those who got uh, placebo or control. So this to me, to us and means that um, the lenalidomide maintenance can be considered a standard of care. In, these, in all of these studies, it was until progression. There's a lot of controversy. Some people are saying, well, do you need it for only two years, three years, five years? We don't know that answer yet. But we at least know that lenalidomide maintenance does if, uh, prolong survival uh, when you looked at the three studies together. Mm-hmm. And what you said was dramatic, so I just kind of want to call it out. Because the original studies were just looking at how long did it take to progress or progression-free survival. And then your analysis that was just announced was looking at just the overall survival. So you said you saw a 26% um, reduction and then in the risk a of two death. and a half, yes. right, and a two and a half increase in overall survival by using lenalidomide maintenance until the disease progresses again. So that's very significant. Yes, we're pretty excited about this because, as you pointed out, all three studies were PFS studies. In other words, they were designed to show a difference in progression-free survival. And a secondary endpoint on all three studies was overall survival. So they weren't really powered. In other words, to do some of these studies, you have to have several hundred patients to be able to see a difference, especially in overall survival. For PFS, you need smaller numbers, but even then the CLGB CLGB 100-104 study was like a 460 patient study with half going to to lend maintenance and the other half placebo. And the French study was over 500 patients. The Jemima study was about, I believe that was around 250. So either way, you have to have a large number of patients uh, for just progression-free survival differences. And now we're seeing that because we have such we have better therapy than we did say 10 years ago, we now need to have larger number of patients to see if there's going to be an overall survival benefit. And as you can see, it took several took many years to see the difference. So now what we're trying to do is develop are there earlier endpoints that we can use to help us predict long-term outcomes? So this, this whole concept of minimal residual disease by flow cytometry or next-generation sequencing, if you can go into what we call MRD negative state, in other words, there is no minimal residual disease, is that appears to predict for better prog- progression-free survival and probably overall survival. But still people who are MRD negative have progression of disease. So there are other factors that are involved that are with long-term control of disease, and we just need to understand those more. Mm-hmm. And one question is when you have these hundreds of patients, because that's a lot of patients and a lot of data to look at, can you go yeah. retro- ret- retrospectively and say, okay, and when it comes to maintenance, is there a difference in a particular type of genetic um, of yeah. you know, feature of the myeloma, or for whom did this work the very best, and for whom did well, it we, not work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we, on 101.04, we did not have very good cytogenetic data, because when the study opened, 
unlike the French, who have been a little bit ahead of this on this, a lot of places did not do what is called CD138 selection of the marrow to pull out all the plasma cells. Plasma cells expressed uh, CD138. So you pull out all the plasma cells, and most of them are malignant at diagnosis. And then you can, um, the laboratory can look to see what kind of chromosome abnormalities are associated with um, the myeloma, and that helps with prognosis because there's certain chromosome abnormalities that are poor risk, or and then some that are better risk. Mm-hmm. And so, on the French study, they have not completely. We've only um, they had an ASH abstract a few years ago, but they have not actually officially published it. They mentioned in the paper that they saw benefit even in high risk cytogenetics when they actually had in their ASH abstract, it said um, that deletion 17, which is a poor risk abnormality, benefited from LEN maintenance. But again, that's only in abstract form. It was controversy about 414, which is another one. So um, so at least right now, it appears that uh, some will benefit. When we looked at subgroup analysis, we still see, though, that adverse cytogenetic risk is not completely over overcome by LEN maintenance. This is called a subgroup analysis. And that showed that there's, it was probably not as beneficial as somebody who had better risk cytogenetics. So it points out the fact that we have to do better in this patient population. So for example, like in the uh, Hovon uh, 65 trial, where they looked at two years of bortezomib maintenance, deletion 17 also benefited, but again, 414 did not. So there's been some phase two studies, sort of non-comparative studies that have shown that you can retrospectively look back and go, oh, RVD or LEN bortezomib dex in a lower dose, the Emory group published this, uh, for a prolonged period of time controls disease for an extended period of time, but they didn't have a comparator. So we need to start looking at um, newer modalities, uh, newer treatments for controlling disease long-term and thus, we're very excited at some of the newer drugs. So, for example, like daratumumab, uh, the antibody, uh, there are studies now that are examining it as part of maintenance therapy long term. We're very excited because we do know that um, yeah, this type of antibody seems to work against even high-risk cytogenetics. And will this be part of how we can control the disease long term, even in bad-risk cytogenetics? Mm-hmm. And going back to what you first started out with when you were talking about the different studies, the transplant studies, mm-hmm. if the if they had better progression free survival if they did if someone does a transplant up front or early in the course of their disease, would one of the strategies be to do that because um regardless of the overall survival because so many new things are coming out, and you can say, "Well, gosh, if I kick my myeloma out three years, you know or or whatever, it's likely that I'll have lots more options than if I try to kind of take it easy and not do the transplant up front. Or what, as a transplant specialist, what do you suggest? Because you see many, many patients. Sure. And you have well, deep expertise here. That's a good question. Um, the a lot of it is personality driven. So some people are incredibly risk averse. So we present both pros and cons. I am a transplant physician, so I'm I sometimes I'm a bit biased. So I always say when you go to a baker, do you always get bread? Um, so, but mm-hmm. I do try and be balanced. So I show the 
I often often will pull up. I have a uh, a PowerPoint slide where I will show the the curves from the uh, from the different studies, the, both the French and the Italian, and uh, and say, well, this is what we see now. And as you just pointed out, if you are um, relatively fit and you don't know what may happen in the future, so that you may not be able to get that salvage transplant. Um, in the Italian study, for example, I think about. 60% of patients who got chemotherapy instead of a transplant up front were able to get a second transplant, but 40% did not. So there are a variety of reasons. Their disease progressed. They weren't fit. There are a whole bunch of other reasons. So, so if you are otherwise physically fit, it's not fun to have a transplant, but it, but it is a relatively short period of toxicity. Most people feel pretty well. By 30 to 60 days following it, and they're usually by 60 or 120 days, they're usually back to their usual self, and they're able to resume a, a, a regular life. Um, and so we do think about it. I, I, again, we have some people who say, no, I just don't want to do it. And we will say, well, at least you need to store your stem cells. So we strongly recommend that everybody get their stem cells collected after their induction therapy, treat to best response, collect stem cells. We do recommend early transplant because of this whole idea of controlling disease for a longer period of time. Because as you pointed out, there's new drugs. We had four new drugs in 2015, and we may have some more in 2016-17. So this is a very exciting time, at least in terms of having multiple things that we can do to help uh, treat patients uh, with multiple myeloma, both upfront and with relapse disease. Mm-hmm. And let me go back to something else, because one of the other doctors uh, mentioned the same thing you just did when we were talking about genetics, and you said some of the people didn't take, they didn't study the CD138 selected cells. Right. So one doctor mentioned, he, you know, so when somebody's newly diagnosed, they should always ask their doctor or even the lab if they can actually do this, if they can actually select for CD138 when they're getting their testing done so that they're testing the right sample, right? So you have this really valuable information about your own kind of myeloma. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Or is that something that's done just at diagnosis, at relapse? I mean, because this is something patients need to know to go ask, and they don't know that the lab is not doing something right or, you know, doing something deeply or not. Yeah, it's it's this is not a standard. Uh it's become more of a standard and we really need to make it so that everybody's doing this. In fact, um uh I have a Twitter account and Rafael Fonseca from Mayo tweeted about the fact that he had just seen a patient in in consultation who had not had CD138 selected uh, cytogenetic analysis, or SIRFISH, which stands for fluore- fluorescence in situ hybridization. And it's a way of painting the chromosomes to look at chromosome abnormalities within the, um, uh, the plasma cells themselves. And this is, is really very important because um, if we don't get that information, it doesn't help us restratify. So I always... A patient, a well-informed patient, would be able to say, "When you do my bone marrow test, are you going to CD send it to a lab that will do CD138 fish, uh, CD138 selected fish to look for specific uh, chromosome abnormalities associated with multiple myeloma?" 
And you brought up another good point, which is sometimes there's something called clonal evolution, where when the disease comes back, if it's suspected, uh, it would be important to check, are the chromosome abnormalities still there or are there new ones present? Because sometimes that will inform us about the best treatment. So, for example, deletion 13 is thought to be best treated as well as 414 with a bortezomib-containing regimen or at least a proteasome inhibitor. So this type of information is incredibly helpful with regards to telling us what may be the best way to approach this disease. Now, there's some genetic testing. Signal genetics has something called a gene expression profile. And that right now identifies a high-risk patient population, but so far it doesn't tell us what to do about it. Uh, In other words, we know this patient has a higher risk, but we don't have a regimen that's dedicated to knocking out this risk. Hopefully we'll have better understanding as time goes on. There's a company called uh, that does something called Foundation One. They're doing it more in leukemia and uh, lymphoma, especially leukemia, and they're just starting to do it now in multiple myeloma, and that is a way of looking for um, chromosome abnormalities that are associated with um, uh, higher-risk features in myeloma. That's early. And there's now a new polymerase chain reaction. It's a a test to look at the RNA and DNA in the cells that may identify in larger amount the uh, multiple chromosome abnormalities associated with multiple myeloma and how these change over time. So this is all very exciting. This is somewhat new. Uh, The the PCR, and more of the molecular testing. But the cytogenetic testing should be considered standard. Mm-hmm. Well, it just seems to be if you're running studies and you have hundred pati- hundreds of patients enrolled, if you really had this at the beginning of those studies, you could eventually and quickly personalize treatment based on the results of these large-scale phase three type studies. If you had that beginning at the beginning, it would just be so much easier. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that technology evolves so that sometimes mm-hmm. we see what what is standard today will be outdated uh, you know, a year from now. I don't think it would be quite that fast, but the field is moving quickly. So we're trying to keep up, and so part of it is we store samples and then go back and look at them later. Uh, we incorporate new ways of uh, understanding the genetics of the uh, of the disease so that it helps us predict the best treatment. And again, with some of the new drugs we have, what we're really interested in doing is looking to see how drugs that like elotuzumab, daratumumab, exazimib, how well do they impact on outcome for not, for not just lower risk patients, but for all risk patients. Mm-hmm. And my main question about this show is, you know, as a transplant expert, you could run, you could do a typical transplant, with a, but with all these new therapies, what's advantageous to add on the front end and what's advantageous to add on the back end? So you talked about lenalidomide maintenance, and that mm-hmm. clearly makes a big difference. And in some patients, you mentioned that proteasome inhibitors might be used as a maintenance therapy. So as a patient who might be seen by a local oncologist, how do they go about, um, and we always advocate they see a myeloma specialist, but how how does that doctor or how does a myeloma specialist choose the right maintenance therapy or, or new drug add-on 
um, in the mix with transplant? How do you come to those conclusions yeah. for each patient? Does that seem That's very question. difficult? Good question. Well, I think we're moving away from doublets So, I, for a transplant eligible. So if you have somebody who's young and fit and would be considered a transplant candidate, in the old days we used to th do things such as lenalidomide dexamethasone or bortezomib dexamethasone as a doublet. And I think there's enough data to suggest that we really should be looking at triplets. One of the triplets was um, bortezomib cyclophosphamide dex, um, and the other was lenalidomide um, bortezomib dex. And just recently at the last ASH meeting, the French studied, um, it was a little different, it was bortezomib thalidomide dex, and they compared it to uh, bortezomib cyclophosphamide dex, so-called VCD versus VTD. And what they showed was the patients who got the thalidomide-containing regimen had a little bit better responses. There's no difference in... Uh, PFS, but they really they weren't asking that question yet because it's early. They were only looking at response to induction therapy. So that made us think that perhaps the um, the addition of the imid, the thalidomide, was a little bit better when combined with the proteasone inhibitor. So so at least now people then extrapolated. Well, lenalidomide is a little bit better tolerated than thalidomide. So the so-called RVD regimen or lenalidomide bortezomib dex, as a lot of people are using that now, because it appears that using a triplet gives you better responses than using a doublet, and that you can deepen the response. So the thought is that the more you can drive the cancer down. Um, it allows the melphalan the ability to kill off less cells. In other words, there's less cells that have to be killed off uh, when you actually come to a stem cell transplant. So in other words, patients who achieve a, a CR or even a stringent CR where you can't detect it by flow or molecular testing, they seem to do better than those who, uh, who have a lesser response to the induction therapy. So right now, that's sort of where people are moving towards with the sort of standard FDA-approved approaches to treatment. Now, there is a study being done in Europe looking at daratumumab uh, with VTD, the bortezomib thaldex, and they're comparing dara VTD versus VTD, stem cell transplant, and then a consolidation afterwards. That study's still ongoing, and that will give us some information. The only problem is it, it does use thalidomide, which we don't use as much now in the States. So in the alliance, uh, which you mentioned in the intro, uh, we are going to be studying RVD-DARA uh, versus RVD, and uh, Peter Voorhees is leading that trial um, for the alliance. And that's a phase two study, so it's going to give us a signal that we hope we can translate into a phase three study where we can have a definitive comparison. So we think that, for example, that would be one other way of incorporating some of the newer drugs. There's interest in doing the same thing with elotuzumab uh, as well, and the, or substituting ixazomib for uh, bortezomib, and that way you'd have a triple drug regimen that's all oral. And so these are triple combinations as induction therapy, right? So you're testing... Yes. Because right now daratumumab is only for... I saw they just changed the designation, so now you can get it after you've had one therapy with in a combo, yes. in that combo. But yes. um, that would be upfront before transplant, right? That's what you're saying? Yes. Yes, that's going to be tested. Okay. I, I'm not saying that's not standard right. yet. 
but it's currently right, that, being tested right trials. now. Okay. Yes, they're that's all great. clinical trials. Um, so, and it is exciting because yeah. Daratum, as you know, was, was initially approved as a single agent. But after both the uh, the EHA and the ASCO presentations combined with VD or RD, uh, it, it's it's going to be incorporated as part of a, a triplet for uh, salvage therapy for those who've had relapse after their uh, original treatment. Mm-hmm. And that would, that's a quad therapy, so you're moving yeah. well beyond the doublets, right? <laughs> yeah, and in the old days, when they tried a quad therapy, there was a study called the Evolution Trial where they compared VCD, RVD, and RVD plus C. It's an RVCD. That was the quadruplet then. It was a little too toxic because it had a little too much. It had sacrophosphamide, lenalidomide, um, bortezomib, and dex, and the combination of probably of the len plus the cyclophosphamide was fairly tough on the marrow. So sometimes you got to get the right drugs together to get the right quadruplet. And you have to study it. So I'm not saying that the daratumumab, lenbortezomib, dex is going to be standard, but it's going to be tested to see if it will become a standard. Mm-hmm. And evotuzumab usually works well with Revlimid, so you can combine that into the that quad therapy, and that might be equally effective exactly. or or you'll just have to yeah. test it and see. Exactly. Well, it's exciting we now that these drugs are yeah, are available now and now you can do the all the different iterations. Yes, we're excited about studies and really it's just going to be a matter of having enough patients who are willing to participate in clinical trials, because that's critically important. Um, and, and we are grateful that people are willing to participate in trials because it offers them access to the new agents, but it also allows us to be able to best position ourselves. And it, we really rely on the, the goodness of people's hearts to participate in trials so that five years from now, we'll know what may be the best way to do things. And just as somebody did this five and 10 years ago to help us today decide what's the best approach to the treatment of uh, both upfront and relapse disease. Mm-hmm. Well, this program was created to encourage clinical trial participation because this is a way patients can help weigh in to uh, help accelerate their own cure. So I would I would say after you have a drug that's been approved and it looks like it's working well, um, I would hesitate to just do a standard transplant anymore. I would want to add all these different new agents into the mix and see how deep my response could potentially get. Um, same same yes. thing for uh, in a relapsed situation. You know, I I would I don't think personally now knowing what I know now, I don't think I would ever do just a standard second transplant. I would look into a clinical trial and find something else that was added to stand transplant to make it even better. So. Yes, in fact, we do know that um second transplant, say the disease comes back and some people can get a second transplant. And in the British did a study where they compared it to just cyclophosphamide alone and found that second transplant was better because there really was no standard for what to do after reinduction and a second transplant versus just doing reinduction and uh and following the patient. So we know second transplant works. That was published uh just recently in Lancet Hematology with Gordon Cook as the first author. But you, you, we're in the middle of trying to sort out what's going to be the best maintenance, say, approach after um, 
after a transplant, both upfront or and then later on after if you're it's a second transplant. For upfront, um, we now have a bunch of different drugs that we could potentially look at. Um, one of there's some HDAC inhibitors, histone, deacetylase inhibitors that are being tested or looked at. There's daratumumab, elotuzumab. There's even checkpoint in, inhibition with a Pembro, uh, which is uh, another drug, pembrolizumab. So what we need to do now is sort of figure out what may be the best way to do this. So we're actually trying to develop a trial in the alliance to look at sort of a pick the winner. We would do smaller phase two studies to see which one gave us the best signal and then try and look at that in a larger phase three study so that we can then pick which would be the best uh, approach for um maintaining disease control. There's some cellular therapies going on. There's a variety of um, cell products, off-the-shelf products that are being developed to maintain disease control. Um, Some of them are natural killer cells. Some are T cells. Uh, We have a vaccine trial that's through the BMT-CTN, and it's a randomized trial looking at uh, dendritic cell vaccine where the patient's own cancer cells were infused uh, or fused with something called uh, a dendritic cell to create a vaccine where the patient responds to their tumor cell. Uh, you make it into like a, a vac- uh, an antigen. And so this would potentially allow us as a platform for long-term disease control by allowing the patient's own immune system to get revved up to attack the cancer. And these are all sort of new studies. The, this one is called BMT-CTN-1401. That is just opening in a variety of centers throughout the states. And these other maintenance trials that we're talking about developing, adding on to lenalidomide, whether it be lenalidomide with DARA, lenalidomide with ELO, lenalidomide with HDAC inhibitor, um, what will be the best platform for moving ahead so that we can potentially look at, say, a doublet? Uh, for controlling diseases maintenance as opposed to a a single agent. So these are all questions that we need to answer. We need to make sure they're not toxic, uh, that the patient uh, is able to to, uh, maintain their usual quality of life without having toxicity. We don't know enough about scheduling, and we don't know enough about how long. So these are all questions that we need to uh, look at, and, and we appreciate patients who are willing to participate in these trials to be offered as you pointed out, the opportunity to be able to uh, have a new drug uh, that might be able to control their disease long long term. Mm-hmm. Right. And it sounds like you talked about multiple strategies. So one strategy is to add something as you're doing transplant, like this dendritic cell vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maintenance, what you talked about earlier, is a whole separate um, idea. So right. when you're – and I think this study just – opened just barely, like last week or something that you were talking about, the dendritic cell vaccine. It's open like in 16 locations. So it's at a lot of different facilities. Um, But, and I I did talk to Dr. Avigan just a little bit about that one. And it sounds like you're doing the transplant and then several days later, you're not waiting a long time. It's not like it's maintenance therapy, but you're doing it with the transplant pretty much. And you're it's, giving it's the a few days with the transplant. Right. 
Right. So what happens is the patient's own cells, cancer cells are collected early. Then they fuse the cancer cell with the patient's own normal cells to create this vaccine, which is administered subcutaneously as a shot. I, I can't remember the exact period if it's 30 or 60 days after the stem cell, but it's relatively early. And then it is uh, given to uh, with lenalidomide and a drug called GMCSF to rev up the patient's immune system so that they potentially, the patient would potentially attack their own any residual cancer that still might be in their body. Mm-hmm. And just a point on that, a lot of the doctors have said oh, vaccines aren't that great if you just use them by themselves, or you have to use a lot, you know, have low, really low tumor burden. And this is a way of using a stem cell transplant to knock down the tumor burden and then use a vaccine that could extend the, you know, effectiveness of the transplant, but also do something plus. So I think those types of studies are really exciting. Oh, uh, definitely. And this is one of them. Uh, We are working with one of the companies, Celgene, to develop. They have an off-the-shelf uh, natural killer cell product where it's derived from placental cells where they uh, get, put the right cocktail of uh, cytokines, uh, which are uh, molecules that help the cells grow. And they create what are called natural killer cells, which are a type of immune cell which will kill tumor cells. And they have a trial looking at it in, in something called acute myeloid leukemia, um, and they're also going to be looking at natural killer cells in, I think, about five or six centers uh, after autotransplant for myeloma as a platform for further drug development because these cells right now last about two weeks. You give uh, a drug called interleukin-2 to help stimulate them, but eventually they sort of go away. And this is a third-party um, It's somebody else, well, it's derived from a placental cell, uh, from placental blood. So this can be grown up and expanded and potentially used in multiple infusions to control disease long-term. Or there's some new cytokines. There's a drug called interleukin-15, which might stimulate MK cells to live a lot longer. uh, That cytokine, IL-15, is still not FDA-approved. So this is a whole new area of cellular therapy to, again, help maintain response in a minimal residual state after a stem cell transplant where it's easier to potentially control or kill off any residual disease. So absolutely, there are multiple different strategies that are being tested to see how we can control this disease long-term and, as we talked about, someday eradicate it completely. Mm-hmm. And as you go after these residual cells, I've heard some doctors, and I think there's some disagreement about this, about um, cancer stem cells or these precursor cells that might be lingering around, and um, that's what transplant or the other drugs may not be getting to. Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, that's that's a big question. Is that I'm not sure. A can of worms? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I, I'm pretty agnostic on this one. I don't know. Um, there are a variety of um, of strategies. Some people think that. You're right. It's, it is a primordial stem cell that doesn't have the features of myeloma that from which the myeloma arises. Some people feel that it's uh, that the myeloma cell is pretty much the beginning uh, as opposed to a stem cell. So there's data suggest both. And so 
we're not certain because we do know, for example, there are certain markers that are present on some myeloma cells and not others. There's certain genetics that are associated with one myeloma and not another. And so I am I am taking a wait-and-see approach because I mm-hmm. am still not sure which is the right answer so that we need to be looking at it, though, and studying it so that if we think we're in a minimal residual disease state, can we be looking for other cells within the, the bone marrow that might be something that could be a precursor to, you know, or the stem cell that might turn, that's lying there dormant and then all of a sudden goes malignant, as opposed to we've we've killed them off and we just want to make sure we keep eradicating them with our current strategy. So I I don't I don't feel strongly one way or the other. I think we just have to see what what the data tells us. And because mm-hmm. myeloma is a pretty heterogeneous disease, I think we even may see both. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense that some of the cells might just not respond to the drugs that are being given, mm-hmm. and then there might be something else happening going on that, that yeah. we don't know about yet. Right. Well, it, it um, is a good example. Like the car, I'm sorry. The the this one no, small point. The you know the CAR T cell study that was done. Uh, Ed, you probably had Ed Stoudmire uh, on to talk about the where they manipulated the patient's own T cells to attack CD19. And CD19 is really not expressed that much on myeloma cells. But they had one patient in whom a CD19 car completely eradicated the disease. Uh, And that didn't make quite a lot of sense, but it sure did work. So there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand. The same thing with them. There's another CAR T cell that... Dr. Korchendorfer presented at the last ASH meeting, and it's against call, uh, something called B-cell maturation antigen, which is also expressed by myeloma cells, but also some precursors. And for a lot of patients, it didn't work or else it just stabilized disease. But there was one patient in whom this cellular-directed therapy completely eradicated the, the disease. So we still don't know everything that we need to know to help us understand yet completely how we control the disease for all patients. Mm-hmm. Is CAR T-cell research, I mean, we're helping to fund a CAR T-cell research project that's targeting CS1 and BCMA, but mm-hmm. is CAR, the CAR T-cell stuff being used with transplant or potentially could it be? I know right it now it be. seems like it's do it using it alone. Right now, it's being used as a salvage. So, in other words, if somebody is resistant mm-hmm. usually to multiple lines of therapy, CAR T cells, either say to CS1 or it's also called SLAM F7, uh, that's mm-hmm. one type of CAR. Um, BCMA is another type of CAR. There's actually antibodies being developed to BCMA, so you may not need to develop the CARs. Because the one problem with the CAR T cell technology is you have to take the patient's own cells, you have to grow them up. Uh, with the uh, modified um, uh, chimeric antigen receptor to attack the antigen of interest. And it's fairly laborious. What would be great is if you could have an off-the-shelf, something that's sitting in the freezer that you can administer the patient right away without having to go through growing it up. Whether or not we, that will ever be practical, we don't know. Um, but these are all things that are... Um, currently in development, and uh, there are many centers who, both in the States and uh, in Europe who are looking at different strategies for CAR T cells. The natural killer cell 
uh, therapy I talked about earlier is relatively nonspecific. In other words, you don't have to have the patient's own cells, but it's uh, it's an off-the-shelf, and it's a relatively it's it's somewhat nonspecific, but it may be that may be enough to kill different types of myeloma cells in the patient. We, these are because myeloma sometimes mutates into different types of. Uh, uh, they have different expression of different molecules, different genetics within the patient within the patient themselves. In other words, there were several clones that are abnormal, and you have to figure out a way to target all of them. So these are all questions that we we have to ask by clinical answer by clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Now you talked a lot about uh, maintenance therapy and lenalidomide, and we talked a little bit about proteasome inhibitors. When people get refractory to lenalidomide, what do you suggest to extend the life of the transplant that they just had without the Revlimid? Yeah, good question. If somebody has progression of their disease on lenalidomide, then usually the lenalidomide is given in low dose. So if it's a slow progression, you might be able to get away with increasing the lenalidomide to treatment dose um, with dexamethasone. So that's one possibility. Uh, but now that we have newer drugs, there are other things you could do. If it's a relatively slow relapse and you're seeing it progress over time, then you, the physician with the patient will make the decision of when to treat. You can, there are, here are some of your options. One is to use um, elotuzumab uh, with Lendex because the elo combined with the lenalidomide has good activity against myeloma cells. And it uh, doesn't have the infusional toxicity associated with daratumumab. Um, and daratumumab now is being moved up, so now you're going to have that option. Uh, Ixazomib is another drug uh, combined with Lendex for progression. So that's that's also uh, for somebody who's not having a very aggressive pro- progression. If you have somebody who has an aggressive progression and they're otherwise fit, carfilzomib combined with Lendex is reasonable. Some people are combining with pomalinamide as well. Pomalinamide often will allow you to rescue somebody who is Len resistant uh, because it it uh, it will salvage patients, probably via the Cerebron pathway, um, and that pomalinamide is less affected by this type of resistance in a, in a patient who's who no longer responds to lenalidomide. And then so and then daratumumab. We might want to now that we're going to start bringing that up more because it used to be for more than two relap, uh, prior uh, lines. It's going to be now um, something that you can bring up sooner. So right now we're in a position where we have multiple choices, and there's also panabinostat uh, combined with mm-hmm. Lendex. I mean, sorry, with bortezomib dex, that has activity as well. So I think that we're just going to have to wait and see how this all shakes out because we have lots of possibilities to get the patient back into response and then control the disease for a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you've relapsed, I mean, you've become refractory to lenalidomide, you're really, in what you just said, you're pretty much in active disease control and then you're using these different combinations. Yeah, one thing um, that's interesting, too, is that the lenalidomide makes antibodies work better. So even if you have a patient who is resistant to len, 
if you add LEN not to have a direct myeloma effect, but potentiate or increase the activity of the antibodies, we're seeing that it makes it makes elotuzumab work better. It makes daratumumab work better. Probably the same thing with pomalinamide. So we're very interested in how these these small molecules, these imids, enhance the activity of antibodies. Same thing with pembrolizumab. The pembro is as a single agent is sort of mediocre, but when you combine it with Lendex, you get more activity. I've heard that before, that it um, activates your immune system. So they use lenalidomide a lot with some of these other strategies too. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now, um, talking about a very, well, I guess mid-transplant, so we've talked about kind of pre-transplant and what's going on in clinical trials. They're, They're adding some of these quad therapies as induction therapy. I did a show with um, Dr. Barty who talked about cleaning up the stem cells before they were given back during transplant. Is there any other work that you think is significant that's being done to help make the transplant process better itself? And, and yeah. then I think we'll open it up to other uh, caller questions. Sure. That I, I went and read about his, uh, uh, he's using a myxoma virus, which seems to be able to target the myeloma cells that potentially might be in the stem cell graft. We most of the time treat people the best response, so they shouldn't have uh, tumor contamination in the stem cell product. But if they did, this would be a potential modality to completely guarantee that. We think that most of the time when disease recurs, it's because there's residual disease in the patient. So as you know, there have been some strategies trying to use uh, viral-mediated therapy. There was a measles uh, virus study from Mm -hmm. the Mayo Group where you actually target on the measles receptor, it's kind of cool, uh, which is some expressed on myeloma cells so that you actually get the measles virus in and kill the, kill the plasma cell. These are all sort of not quite ready for prime time, but these are very interesting avenues of research. Um, I think the most important thing is still control of disease in the patient, that we can probably get a pretty clean stem cell product if we can drive the disease into a way and, and, and have the patient now have a stringent, complete response so that we'll collect stem cells that will be relatively clean. I think it'd be it would help guarantee a clean stem cell product. But I think the the big problem we have to face is disease that's still in the patient that we need to figure out a way. The, mal- the high-dose malflan knocks it down further. But what can we do to, to eradicate those clones, whether or not they're hiding out as stem cell precursors or they're laying dormant as uh, as plasma cells? and are not as affected by the medications that we currently use. Or maybe they will be by such things as the antibodies, which will allow the immune system uh, to target uh, these cancer cells and get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And then when you reviewed all the different international studies and you were you saw one of the arms comparing single versus tandem transplant, does that provide benefit? Yeah, there. That's still not quite a clear question because all the question. earlier, yeah, the MNO2 um, study does look at single versus tandem, but it's they didn't report on that. They 
suggested that maybe if you got two, you did a little bit better. But it wasn't they that wasn't the primary present point of his presentation. So we'll have to wait and see from that study. Um, as I mentioned earlier, BMTC TN0702 that will give us some pretty good information in the modern era of. Um, of the utility of two transplants. It's tough to get through two. It's hard to get through one, but some people are able to do that. And the issue becomes, do you need to get two back-to-back, or can you save it for later on? And those are questions we don't have the final answers to. Um, we do know that for patients who don't, in Europe at least, there's the standard is if you don't have a good response or if you're not at least a very good partial response, at least a 90% reduction with one transplant, you should get a second. And so I think that, again, that's done more often in Europe. Some places in the States do that as well. So I think the data is not completely in, especially now that we have these new drugs which drive people into better responses. We may not necessarily need to do two transplants, but it's still an open question. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Now, do you have any other comments about add-on strategies that, that could be adopted? Or it's, I mean, we've gone over a lot. <laughs> And the time goes so quickly, and there's so much to talk about. But I want to leave it open for you to make some um, final kind of assessments before I open it up for caller questions. No, I, I think the most important thing we did touch on is we are so happy that people participate in clinical trials. Uh, and I'm glad that you're sponsoring one because I think this is what will allow us to advance the field and come up with the best strategy for for someday uh, completely eradicating this disease. Well, I completely, I completely agree. And as a patient, I want to come to conclusions as fast as possible and help you, people like you, and the researchers who are doing this incredible work, uh, come to their conclusions faster because it's really in our self-interest to do that. So oh. we, uh, it's, it's great. And what the, the work that you're doing is truly great and incredible. No, I appreciate so, uh, the opportunity. Like to, Thank yeah. you. Well, we'd like to open it up for caller questions. So call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad if you have a question. So we'll start with our first caller question at 558-8163. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, hi, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, my question is about when to use a second transplant or, or not to. How long should the first one first one have worked to in order to consider a second? And I know some doctors say, you know, why do a second if the first didn't work well it's very long? So I was just maybe you could help me out understand that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I a lot of it has to do with length of time. So in other words, as a rough rule of thumb, if it's if if the disease progresses requiring therapy, especially after eighteen months and even longer, two years, three years, four years, a second transplant probably will be of some benefit. If the progression is early, like within a year in particular, it's less likely to be a benefit to do a second transplant because the disease came back fairly quickly after the high-dose malplant. So everybody has a slightly different place where they cut it. Some people do it at 12 months, some at 18 months, some at two years. So I think that's what people are thinking of, that if it took a long time for the disease to come back, Thus, a second transplant may be a benefit um, uh, because, again, there was a good response to the first transplant. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, great. Thanks for your question. 
Okay, our second caller, 2046956. Go ahead with your question. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. We can hear you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, I have a question about your thoughts on aloe transplant. Where does that uh, fit in all of this? And there are a few clinical trials. I know that there's one at John Hopkins, and I think um, there were a few that were opened at uh, MD Anderson that seem to overcome the um, mortality rate from graft-versus-host disease. So thoughts on that? Sure. Um, there was a, a trial that had been opened. It's going to reopen again called BMTCTN1302. And that is a reduced intensity allotransplant. Uh, and there's a back-end randomization to exazomib versus placebo uh, to see whether or not the addition of exazomib could help control the disease in an allo setting. As you pointed out, the major toxicity that we face in an allotransplant is graft-versus-host disease. And it can be people can die from it so that we are trying to come up with the best strategy uh, for a very high-risk patient population. So if we do offer allotransplant, it's usually in patients who have diseases such as, say, plasma cell leukemia uh, or very high-risk multiple myeloma or occasionally. So, for example, I have a patient, he's 32 years old. He, it took three different regimens to finally have a semblance of control over his disease. So we're going to do, for example, um, unfortunately, 1302 is closed right now. We would have offered him that trial, uh, but we're going to offer him an allotransplant just because we are so concerned that his disease won't respond to the autotransplant. So we don't do a lot of them. The vast majority of the patients at our center undergo an autologous transplant because they often do so well with it. But for patients that we've identified with, uh, with our team as being very ultra-high risk, we will offer them an allotransplant. But as you pointed out, there are various – nobody has the right way of doing it. So there are a variety of different clinical trials that are being developed to see what may be the best approach to, uh, to controlling the disease and minimizing the uh, toxicity associated with allotransplant. Okay. Um, I have a follow-up question. Um, if sure. a patient elects to do an allotransplant, I, I, forgive my ignorance on this topic, but how much thicker no. control the GBH, how much thicker or more awful would a patient feel compared uh, to their transplant? Well, we don't have – unfortunately, I, I have this discussion a lot with patients because um, sometimes we cannot predict who's going to get bad GVHD, for example, and who doesn't, where the donor cells attack not just the cancer, but they also attack normal tissue. And when they attack normal tissue, you can get very sick from that. So we – don't yet have a way of predicting who is going to get bad GVHD and who is not. We do. There are some strategies now that may suggest early onset of GVHD so we can intervene early, but they're still not ready for prime time or universal acceptance. So we don't know yet which is the best approach. But we do know that um, uh, we are trying to develop what are called reduced-intensity transplants so that we get the patient to as best response as possible, take them to the allotransplant where there's as little disease around as possible because if there's too much myeloma around, it makes it very difficult for this graft-versus-myeloma effect or graft-versus-tumor effect. 
So you can get fairly sick from this. Uh, but then we have some patients who we call them, they sail through it because there's minimal toxicity. So until we better understand all the predictive factors, we can't say with 100% to a patient, oh, you're going to do just fine or you're going to have a fair amount of toxicity. Just yet. We're getting close. A lot of it depends on the age of the patient, how much disease they have, what kind of donor they have. But we we don't have it nailed completely where we can say to a patient, oh, uh, we can really guarantee that you're not going to have that much toxicity yet. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking up my late question. Sure. Well, thanks for your question. Well, Dr. McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us um, today. We're just thrilled that you're working on all these different iterations to, to make transplant better and to extend outcomes and potentially cure patients. We're very, very grateful for your daily work and dedication for us. So thank you so much well, for all I'm you great. do. I'm just, I think it's so wonderful that you have this radio program because it's part of, uh, of getting the word out to patients so that they can best understand what their treatment options are and be an informed patient so that they can, they can know the best strategy for trying to control and someday eliminate uh, the multiple myeloma. Yeah, I agree. And if we ask better questions, we're going to get better care. <laughs> Because uh, it's it's better to tap you when you come into the, it's better to tap you when we come into our appointment, um, and ask those important questions uh, rather than not (laughs) when we have your absolutely. So, yeah, we're so thank you, thankful for you. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we thank you for listening to another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Join us for future shows to learn more about the latest myeloma research and what it means for you. 